for being only a, uh, a prominent expert on the region. He's also an expert on conflict resolution. And that's what, uh, that's what sets this book aside. It's, the book is basically a roadmap for the management and the resolution of the conflict. All the more important at a time that Saudi Arabia and the Gulf have been hit by a double, if not a triple whammy. So with other words, the, the, fall, the pandemic itself, the economic fallout with the collapse of the oil markets, and potentially and probably ultimately a financial crisis. I'm gonna leave it at that and give the floor to Ibrahim, who will, who will masterly put this all into context for us. Thank you so much, uh, James. Uh, let me begin with thanking the Middle East Institute. Uh, I was there in 2015, I recall, and uh, I miss uh, those days being there. And uh, I'm glad to be here with you guys today uh, again. And I hope uh, you know we'll have uh, a different future from the uh, current time, the current situation that we're having at the moment, and that uh, we see you again there in Singapore. Uh, okay, let me begin, uh, as uh, James started saying, I've been working on conflict resolutions uh, in the region uh, where my previous book was on unfinished resolutions, uh, Yemen, Libya, and Tunisia uh, after the Arab Spring. Uh, so uh, uh, I've been working on conflict resolutions, but unfortunately I haven't been able to resolve any conflicts in the region. So all the Conflicts are still continuing, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Yemen, Israel, Palestine, and you name it. So uh, it's uh, tough times for the region. So I'm uh, trying to continue to share my expertise and my thoughts on how this could be uh, managed and uh, which could pave the way for uh, hopefully for uh, resolution. Uh, let me begin with uh, just saying something about uh, my methodology, the research methodology that I used for this book, uh, where I did uh, about 60 interviews with uh, scholars uh, from the Gulf, from Iran, and from the international community as well, uh, from the US and Europe, uh, uh, with scholars, former policymakers, journalists, civil society leaders, uh, and others. Uh, in addition, actually, I uh, was fortunate to have uh, to be involved in a number of track two workshops. We had over 15 track two workshops uh, uh, that involved uh, participants from the Gulf, Iran, uh, and also from the international community in different places. We had several in Qatar, we had in Europe, we had um, in a number of other places. Uh, where we had participants coming from um, the region. And the importance of these track two workshops is that um, where the dynamics uh, of uh, discussion of the, uh, of the conflict changed. Instead of taking statements from policymakers who are talking to the media and making statements, they're talking to their <clears throat> uh, constituency, rather talking to the other uh, side, but with track two workshops uh, all under the Chatham House. Uh, so the dynamics changed and we were able to have uh, frank, candid discussion uh, among all the participants about uh, the conflict and what's driving it and 
the prospects for resolution. So this really informed my research uh, about uh, this. And also we had public events, as you see. That's one of the public events uh, that we had back in 2015, I recall, uh, with uh, you know, uh, Jamal Khashoggi and Sajid Boor and uh, Nasser Hadian from Iran as well. Uh, where we uh, managed to discuss also uh, this uh, important subject openly and publicly, uh, where I was moderating in these discussions and trying to uh, come up with uh, some sort of understanding about. Uh, let me begin then uh, with uh, why it is a chaotic conflict. You know, why I chose this title and why I believe it's uh, chaotic. And, uh, and that's one important reason for uh, us not being able to resolve this conflict uh, because of the chaotic nature uh, of this conflict. Yes, conflict in general is chaotic, but this conflict, I believe, is probably more chaotic than others. Uh, and why I believe it's chaotic conflict? Because we're still after, depending on where you want to uh, trace this conflict, the start point of it in 2003 of the American invasion of Iraq and the change of the balance of power in the region or to the export of the, revolution, uh, export of the revolutions back in 1979. Or if you want, like uh, Barack Obama, to treat it as an ancient conflict, uh, uh, we're still arguing uh, about the causes and the issues. Why are they fighting and what are they fighting about? And really interesting, even in, this, in these track-to-workshops that we had, we spent a lot of time, uh, and I have to uh, here recognize uh, the excellent work of my uh, friend, Abdullah Baboud, who's with us today, who was one of the organizers of some of these workshops, and he was attending these discussions. Uh, and to see that we spent plenty of time uh, during those times trying to understand the causes. Why are we fighting? What are the motives uh, of this conflict? And what are they fighting about, you know, the, the issues of conflict? And in many of those discussions, like we ended up with no agreement, right, of what the real issues of the conflict are and you know what is motivating the parties uh, in this uh, in this conflict not only about the causes and the issues but also about the parties themselves who's really fighting this war right to what extent iran is involved in yemen right is it the war of the houthis in yemen or it's the war of iran right it's the same thing in iraq uh, uh, who is really fighting in iraq uh, and to what level uh, is it a proxy or a direct or a one party over the others? Uh, or are we starting to see uh, some sort of an open confrontation probably lately with the two parties? And the same situation applies to Syria and Lebanon and, and other places. But most, uh, uh, most dangerous in my view, uh, also in addition to the causes and the issues of the parties, it's also about the rules and regulations. Uh, of this conflict that are not clear, right? There is no uh, clear rules of the game here. Uh, for example, uh, was the Aramco uh, attack expected, right? To what extent we were surprised of that the escalation could involve 
uh, attacking uh, of, uh, of Aramco uh, in Saudi Arabia. And who did it? Again, we're still not clear about uh, these issues. So the absence of a clear rules and regulations, uh, and also in 2016, uh, after the execution of uh, Nimr and Nimr, uh, Saudi Arabia and the attack on Saudi Arabia's embassy in Tehran uh, resorted to uh, cutting all diplomatic relations. So you can imagine uh, what a conflict would look like uh, when we uh, also have no direct communications between the parties uh, and how you know, chaotic this uh, would, would become. So, uh, in given this chaotic nature, is the conflict resolvable? Is it is rapprochement possible between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Um, I think it is, and other scholars in the field who are uh, researching this also believe that uh, the possibility still exists, and we can. Uh, this is in principle, it's resolvable. And here we don't necessarily referring to full-scale reconciliation between uh, the parties, but at least uh, you know limiting the regional spillover, as Greg Doss argues that it's possible to uh, to limit that impact. Uh, also, Fred Weary argues that uh, uh, we are capable of dialing back and tempering sectarianism, as we saw in 2006 after the war in Lebanon. Uh, between uh, Hezbollah and Israel. Um, not only this, but also after the uh, Iran-Iraq war in 1990, the end of the war, uh, the two parties started uh, some sort of uh, a detente between the two parties and actually it led to signing of the 2001 security pact between the parties. So it's possible uh, to go back to those days. Uh, and if you look at the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia, we had much worse relationships between neighbors uh, like uh, Germany and France uh, in the past, uh, but we are on a different age today uh, in that part of the world. Uh, so in theory, or uh, looking back at history, uh, we can see that the parties themselves can do it as they did it in 2006 and in 1990. Uh, and there is no reason to believe that uh, they can't today. Uh, now, the most uh, one important thing here uh, is also imagining is what Zartman calls is the uh, brightness of the conflict, and where he uh, points out to the mutually hurting stalemate as uh, a condition for uh, rightness of the conflict for a resolution. That is the right moment for a resolution. And when we look at the conflict today, I don't think that the conflict has ever been uh, more achieving or reaching the point of uh, a mutually hurting stalemate for both Iran and Saudi Arabia the way it is today. Uh, we're having the most harsh uh, sanctions against Iran. Uh, and also, on the other hand, Saudi Arabia actually uh, is probably at its lowest point in the past 40 probably years since the uh, Islamic revolution in Iran, where it's uh, involved in many uh, conflicts in Saudi Arabia, in Yemen, uh, in Qatar, in a number of places. And it's not, and it's losing almost in all of them. 
not achieving or making progress in any of these conflicts. Um, and also Iran again under the sanctions. So uh, we have a point where the two parties actually is in mutually hurting stalemate. And again, uh, according to uh, Zartman, this would be uh, a ripe time or a ripe opportunity for a resolution when uh, they see, uh, in addition to the mutually hurting stalemate, uh, a way out uh, or an exit from this uh, chaos uh, in, in the region. Um, for this, I propose this model of how uh, we should do this uh, or we can do this. Uh, and this model has three layers. One is that is a clear understanding about what the issues of the conflict and to what extent that each one of these important issues is affecting the conflict and the role of each issue. Uh, because unless we have a clear distinction about you know, the issues of the conflict, then we were still arguing about uh, you know, where we're going with that. And the second layer, uh, before we get too ambitious about a resolution, we need to regulate the conflict. We need to have a good management uh, of the conflict, which I see that there is a very bad management of this conflict on both sides uh, of the conflict. So one of the important reasons why the US and Soviet Union Cold War never developed to a real war is that they had a good conflict management or a management of the crisis or the Cold War uh, between the two parties, uh, unlike uh, the Iran-Saudi Cold War, as Greg Goss likes to call it, uh, that where we don't have this good management uh, of the conflict, uh, which is, again, in my view, uh, is a step towards resolution. And when we have a good management, regulated conflict, we can then talk about uh, a real resolution of this conflict and how we can uh, resolve it. So the third layer that uh, addresses uh, the resolution. As, as, I see, as you see here, uh, this book uh, focuses uh, mostly about 70% is about the means and the ways and the how to management and resolution of the conflict, unlike uh, many uh, important and excellent books in the literature that focus on the analysis and the understanding uh, of the conflict. So when we talk about the issues, uh, the always, always the elephant in the room is about, is this a sectarian conflict? And the answer, the short answer to this is no, it's not a, it's not a sectarian conflict. Uh, originally it's not, right? So they're not fighting uh, because of Shia-Sunni conflict, is that one is trying to advance Shiism and one is trying to advise Sunnism, uh, or it's not as uh, Barack Obama uh, explained it, saying that this is an ancient conflict, primordial, you know, that, that started ages ago and there's nothing we can do about it. It's not our fault, it's their fault. It's not like that. Right? Uh, so sectarianism is not an original uh, part of the conflict. I do not think that, you know, authoritarian regimes really care about Sunni Shias. They're not, that's not the, their main motive of the conflict. However, uh, I think that 
sectarianism has been used by both parties uh, to advance their political agendas. Right? And with that, with the use and the politicization of sectarianism, sectarianism has become a cause of further escalation right? and reinforcement of destructive conflict dynamics of this conflict. Right? That it, be, it has become as you know, more in, engaged with the region on different levels, the spillover, uh, and even to the people's level in different, uh, especially where Shia communities exist in the region. Um, so that's how sectarianism play, is playing a role in the further escalation and reinforcement of the conflict or destructive conflict dynamics, uh, the role of sectarianism. But originally it's not. As I was told was when, uh, when I talk about the politicization by one of the uh, uh, Arab uh, Shia in Iraq explained it to me that the Arab Shia are the sandbags of Iran's wars, right? That using us as the sandbags for its wars and for its agenda for, for others. And also as Saudi Arabia looks at their Shia community in, uh, in Saudi Arabia as uh, by some clergy uh, religious figures uh, that, uh, you know, fifth column or infidels or these kind of uh, terms that you hear uh, by some in Saudi Arabia, uh, also referring to the uh, sectarian part of uh, Saudi Arabia. So there is, there is definitely a politicization uh, there. Uh, leadership and uh, regime survival uh, is definitely an important dynamic, an important issue of this conflict where Iran also in advancing its political agenda, appointing itself as the leader of the Shia world. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the uh, leader of the Sunni worlds and both competing for the leadership of the Muslim world. But the most important cause, in my view, uh, that what's really driving uh, or the original cause of this conflict is not about, as I said, is about uh, uh, sectarianism and leadership, which are there important, but it's mostly about the security dilemma between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And if we look at these two uh, maps over here, we will see what's, uh, you know, the concept of encirclement emerging between uh, the two parties. You look at the map on the right hand where Iran uh, is uh, encircled or surrounded by the American military bases. If you just do a simple Google uh, search about American bases in the Middle East, uh, you will get this kind of map where you will see uh, how Iran is surrounded by the military bases, which is driving Iran into a mode of nervousness and security fears and uh, about uh, the threat that the American bases uh, face uh, uh, and pose to, uh, to Iran uh, in, uh, in the region and in, in Israel. So which where Iran uh, has been constantly seeing uh, itself or perceive the conflict as under attack by the United States and Israel, as we see in, you know, in those military bases, reinforcing this perception. Now, Iran responds to this by expanding in the region, also through the armed militias, uh, building armed militias in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and in Yemen. And with that, as you see, uh, is causing an encirclement 
right, of Iranian influence around Saudi Arabia, which is again driving Saudi Arabia also into a mode, putting uh, Saudi Arabia into a mode of, again, security fear and nervousness about the Iran's uh, uh, expansion and uh, of armed militias in the region and surrounding Saudi Arabia in different levels. So how do you break this security dilemma, right? is a major reason for uh, uh, a, a major motive that is driving for a dynamic, a cause that driving the conflict. Now, in addition to the uh, encirclement uh, of uh, Saudi Arabia by Iranian in influence, as you see the armed militias in these four countries, there is also the perceived uh, influence, uh, as you see, um, again, perceived doesn't mean necessarily that it's actual. Uh, where Saudi Arabia also look at other parts of the Gulf, uh, like Oman, Qatar, and the eastern part of Saudi Arabia, also where you know there is uh, they have a soft spot for Iran, the way it is perceived, which also uh, poses uh, for Saudi Arabia an additional or exacerbated uh, threat, uh, the way that. Uh, uh, that they see. Um, then uh, we talk about uh, conflict management. Uh, and in conflict management, again, the argument here is that better managed conflicts, they, are, uh, they have a stronger chance to be resolved. Uh, so in order to contain the escalation and put it on a track of a good management, we need to have an, a, a number of steps including but not limited to a hotline between the two parties where uh, on the highest level where things, you know, a verification mechanism because, uh, you know, for, for, the for the development of issues in the region because wars do not always begin uh, in a top-down approach where the leadership of both parties or one party meet and decide to wage a war against the other party. No, that's not the way the First World War started. Right? It's from a bottom-up and developments on the ground that can lead to a war uh, where the parties can uh, or they have to respond uh, you know, to this. And one example, actually, uh, I remember uh, Jamal Khashoggi and I, we spoke about a uh, number of times in the past uh, when the war in uh, that could have led to, to a war between on a more of a uh, bottom up or from the field from, uh, responding to the developments at the field, uh, where when the war in Yemen started and uh, Saudi Arabia imposed the circle that uh, uh, you know blockade on Yemen, and Iran wanted to defy this and send uh, what's called uh, humanitarian assistance of an Iranian jet. Uh, to land in Sana'a and to break, you know, the siege on Yemen. And a two-fighter jet, Saudi Arabia, fly to prevent it from landing. Um, and at that time, you know, the, fight, the Saudi fighter jets, you know, were so in close proximity to the Iranian uh, uh, airplane that was trying to deliver the humanitarian assistance. Uh, we, they got so close Right, that where the pilots, the Iranian and the Saudis, could make eye contacts, right, that close, 
to each other. So you can imagine like such a small mistake by one of the pilots on either side that uh, then would be reported in the news that Saudi Arabia downed the Iranian uh, airplane that's carrying humanitarian assistance uh, to Yemen and then Iran would become obligated to respond and then Saudi Arabia and then who can control the situation. So that's why we need to have uh, verification mechanisms. One example could be uh, a hotline between the senior leadership on both sides, which is one thing that uh, the uh, Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union had uh, as uh, that one. Uh, exchange of senior visits governments. We saw that happening and taking place, Ahmed al-Najjad visiting uh, Iran, and we saw that also uh, during the U uh, U.S. Soviet Union Cold War, uh, Nixon and uh, Soviet leadership also exchanging visits, and also you know we have another example: technical committees. Uh, nothing to do with politics, but on the technical level on both sides, you know, to to meet and to try to think of solutions, right, for the challenges. As we said, you know, the example we saw of the security dilemma. Uh, and how this can be sorted out. And, uh, confidence building measures is another effective uh, conflict management uh, method, a tool that can be used. Uh, and also it's not happening. In one of the workshops, one of the Iranian participants you know, said that at least if we heard an apology right, for uh, the Iranian pilgrimage that they died during the Hajj, at least, sorry, from the Saudi leadership would have made a huge difference for us. And then we could build on that and we engage on that. But and also on the Saudi side, right, um, waiting also for an apology about the attack of the Saudi consulate in Tehran, uh, which also uh, another transforming message uh, that could uh, you know, lead or take it to a different level to show the goodwill of the two parties. There's nothing more dangerous in a conflict than the absence of a dialogue, uh, which again, we uh, severed that, unfortunately, in 2016, uh, and no real serious uh, dialogue taking place uh, between the two parties uh, in order to uh, have or to try to and manage better. Again, as you see, these all are terms of management, not really the resolution. Dialogue is not expected to resolve conflicts, but at least to educate the parties uh, about each other's needs, to have an opportunity for the parties to hear directly from their uh, adversaries about uh, you know, their fears and their security concerns and all about others, which unfortunately is not there. Now, I'm sure some of you are questioning whether the political will exists on both parties or one of the parties uh, and why would be doing this. There is also, to the response to this, there is also the responsibility of the, uh, of the countries in the region. Right? We started talking about how the spillover of this conflict on the region, uh, impacting the region, and uh, the parties in the region, they have... Uh, a responsibility uh, in contributing to the management and the containment of the conflict and simply not engaging and not allowing this kind of, or not allowing for this 
you know, spillover to have in their own region, right? So uh, some sort of uh, fighting polarization or non-allied uh, movement in the region uh, of not supporting one party over the other, but taking a third party, which is also what we saw in the past of a non-aligned movement or the possibility of uh, the parties, again, uh, not being polarized and uh, uh, having or engaging or being a battleground for the conflict, which would help in containing uh, the conflict. Now, is this theory or uh, in terms of ideal, idealism thinking or something? I don't think so, because a number of countries in the region have started to realize this and to distance themselves from this destructive, dangerous rivalry. And I can mention a number of examples. Oman, historically, uh, Morocco at some point, Jordan also, uh, Qatar also, uh, you know, where the parties are trying to, uh, you know, distance or place some sort of a balance uh, between the two parties, not aligning, uh, you know, with one party or a Kuwait is another example. So we're seeing more and more uh, who could, you know, not only not allow their countries to be a battleground of the war, but also to try to establish some sort of a balance and try to pressure actually the parties that would not uh, engage in uh, a resolution or by at least containing the conflict from uh, escalation. Now, when we talk about a resolution, not management, then we in conflict resolution are huge advocates of only always talking to the underlying causes uh, of, uh, of a conflict if you want to talk about meaningful, lasting, and sustainable resolutions. Uh, and if we look at this conflict, uh, a major cause of the current rivalry, if not the major cause, was the change of the balance of power uh, in the region after the U.S. invasion of Iraq and shifting on the shift of the Iraq's position from one side to the other, which allowed uh, you know, for this uh, uh, imbalance of power in the regional order that led to also Iranians' expansion and Saudi Arabia responding in different ways um, and, uh, and all of that. So you have to address the balance of the regional order. Uh, now, now, easier said than done. Who is going to balance this? Now, the U.S., as in number of conversations we had and, uh, in uh, research interviews, is the, the presence of uh, a major power like the U.S. can present this, uh, you know, or can help us achieve this balance uh, of power. Um, and here my argument is that, uh, you know, the, absence, the, the presence of the U.S. is a problem and the absence of the U.S. is a problem as well, right? And this could, you can, we can discuss this for long, but at least we know that the U.S. has been here, uh, again, since when? Forever. Uh, but we, uh, since the start of the Iranian revolution, but, but we never achieved this uh, in terms of the U.S. playing a balance uh, overall. Uh, in this conflict. So uh, we have to look at other ways. Saudi Arabia was thinking if they achieved a, a victory in Syria, uh, then this would compensate for the absence of Iraq. 
but that wasn't the case. Iran, Saudi Arabia lost in Syria. Uh, now, the, there are other ways to think about it of involving others like Turkey and Pakistan and this concept of uh, one region, West Asia and uh, North Africa, uh, balance or security umbrella or security framework. Uh, you can definitely think of other ways like this that you can add this the security component. But also in my view, uh, it started with Iraq and it can be solved with Iraq as well. And here I'm not referring or I'm not, I don't mean that Iraq should shift uh, sides back to Saudi Arabia or to others, but mainly that uh, is about the full independence uh, of Iraq for the Iraqis and being free from the interference of, the, of Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the US, and all other foreign interventions. Just Iraq be for the Iraqis, and Iraq be the independent Iraq, right? Like any, any other nation state is working for the national interest of Iraq itself, right? And I think if we see this happening, this could be uh, a serious way to address the imbalance of the regional order. And in a number of conversations uh, and uh, talks, I heard the president of Iraq, Barham Saleh, talking about uh, the need for Iraq to be uh, fully independent from foreign interventions, all types of foreign interventions. And we saw this also in, uh, after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, where a number of Iraqi forces uh, started raising their voices that we don't want to become the battleground of another war uh, between Iran and the, U and the United States. And also, I'm sure some of you heard about the protests in Iraq and uh, also attacks of Iranian consulate in Karbala uh, and how there is an emerging or uh, a developing uh, understanding within uh, a number of Iraq players, you know, for again, Iraq being independent from the influence of others. And I think that could be a major step towards the uh, balance or the rebalance of the regional order here. Um, another major approach to resolving uh, the conflict would be reforming the conflict strategies of the two parties. Um, and here I'm talking about their sectarian uh, policy reform. Uh, Iran, I think, reproduced its security dilemma with fighting the, uh, the Sunni extremism right, in the region, which is a major cause presented by the Iranian leadership for uh, is trying to uh, expand in the region. Uh, but with that, it provoked further uh, Sunni extremism uh, on its borders as well. So we're here. Uh, reproducing the security dilemma. Saudi Arabia treating uh, you know, some of its citizens or others, other Shia uh, communities in the region as uh, you know, the loyals the, to a foreign country, to Iran, uh, is, an, is a dangerous dynamic that this must be changed, this must be uh, stopped in order to uh, uh, change our uh, you know, conflict uh, strategies. Uh, Iran, uh, by appointing itself as the guardian of the Shia interest, antagonized also uh, societal relationships in a number of those countries. 
in Yemen uh, before the war, uh, and I remember when I used to go there before 2009 uh, and 2011, the Arab Spring, uh, you could never hear anything, any talks about sectarianism, about Shia Sunni. If you go to Iran, to Yemen today, you could hear a lot about that. So this uh, politicization of sectarianism must stop. The domestic reforms needed on both sides in order to achieve it, uh, to achieve a solution. Uh, we need a social contract uh, within uh, Saudi Arabia between society and state. And uh, when we achieve this, that's how Saudi Arabia becomes really strong and becomes uh, much stronger in, uh, in countering the Iranian influence. You can't uh, counter the influence, the, uh, the, the other party, the enemy, if, uh, unless you have a solid front and a solid domestic uh, front, I mean, uh, and in order to be able uh, to achieve this and to work for the interest of the state. In Iran as well, you need to link the politics to the economic well-being uh, of its citizens, learn from the mistakes of the Soviet Union, uh, building arms capabilities and uh, uh, rockets capabilities, I mean, uh, is not the way to achieve uh, the interest. Yeah, five, do I have five minutes? Sorry, <laughs> sorry to be rude, but it's the nasty side of a traffic cop. Yeah, no, I thank you for that. So <laughs> I'm trying to uh, wrap up and list that five minutes. Um, so that would be, uh, is to uh, need, the time has come for South, for Iran also to pay attention to the economic well-being of its citizens and the reform from within. Extremely important for both parties is that the soft power that has been neglected, that both parties have tremendously failed, where both parties are investing in hard power. Uh, Iran developing its rocket capabilities and Saudi Arabia is investing in in the purchase of uh, arms sales from the United States, 460 billion promised or 110, that's actual, uh, whatever the numbers are. Uh, of course, hard power is always important, uh, but I can assure you, it can never achieve you the security and the peace that you need. Israel is a nuclear uh, player in the region and always complaining about its security and uh, the, its need to live in peace. Um, nuclear capabilities does not achieve Israel peace, um, only a meaningful uh, peace with the Palestinians uh, and, uh, and its region that can achieve uh, the peace that uh, it wants uh, or it argues it needs. Uh, so again, uh, here, uh, you, Saudi Arabia and Iran, they need to look at their soft power. This branding of Wahhabism and terrorism of Saudi Arabia must change and must engage in uh, changing the branding. Iran's uh, model was uh, very appealing if you go back to the early 80s to the region. Uh, uh, in, in, in the region back in the 80s, you could see uh, the pictures of Khomeini in a number of Arab capitals. If you go today uh, to uh, the Arab region, a uh, number of Arab countries, where would you see Khamenei's picture? Probably in the Dahia in, in Beirut and in, in Saada in the north of Yemen. And if you pick any person in the uh, Arab countries and ask them whether they want to go to uh, Tehran or for example to Dubai, uh, I'm not sure who would tell you that uh, they would go to Tehran. So the Iranian model 
uh, is not appealing. And there's not, Iran needs to look at that and needs to develop to look at its soft power. And there is the, uh, the, the very important example in my view where Iran lost in its uh, branding and soft power that used to be uh, you know, the victim or, or is the victim of the chemical weapons used uh, by Saddam back during the Iran-Iraq war. But later as engagement with the Assad regime allegedly using the uh, chemical weapons against its people, you know, being on the side of the perpetrator. Iran could see the shift, you know, from, uh, you know, the victim to the victimizer. And finally, uh, uh, we need to look at other uh, approaches or other levels of building peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Track two has been ignored. There are modest attempts uh, here and there a number of the workshops that we had, a number of other centers are doing this. Uh, I talk about the experience in the book and evaluating the experience. Gulf Research Center has done. Abdullah Baboud has, when he was the director of the Gulf Studies program at Qatar University, did many of that. Uh, and uh, it's taking place on another, on a, in a number of ways, but it's still in a very modest, the impact is very limited. Uh, but there is a way to invest and there is a huge potential that exists here that it's not used. And my friends, as uh, I end with, uh, peace can always be, uh, peace agreements can always be signed between leaders, but it can never be achieved uh, in a meaningful way unless the people of the two countries or the two parties live peace and uh, are on board, are parties of that. And that's where we need to see more serious investment uh, in, uh, in the grassroots level of the education, uh, sport, media. That's also unfortunately not there. Uh, look how many uh, centers uh, specializing in Iranian studies, for example, in the region, or the other way around, or who, how many Iranian students are studying in Saudi Arabia, or how many students, uh, Saudi students studying in Tehran. Uh, so this huge potential is unutilized. The leaders must realize this. It's our role to uh, advocate for this and alert them, even when they decide in the future, uh, like what they did in 2001 of signing a security pact between the two parties. Hey, if you do this, you need a solid, like a solid uh, uh, level on the people's level that can sustain this, that can carry this, and that they can engage where you have this. So it's to support future decisions by the leaders. And that's where the uh, unused potential uh, for uh, peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And thank you for your patience and 